It was definitely the Lord who brought Mm -hmm. me along on a journey to be able to say, how are you standing for the family? Will you stand for your brothers and sisters who don't bear your same skin color? And that was a challenge, challenging me on my ideas of social justice. You know, are you for justice for all people or are you for this idea of wealth and power redistribution? What is the justice that is spoken of in scripture and what are you going to stand for? So those are some of the things that that kind of led me away from it. But I'm telling you, to be able to move away from frameworks or ideologies that are not Christian, that are not biblical, you have to be able to hold the scripture as the highest authority. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. If you've been enjoying the podcast, would you take a minute to log on to your favorite podcast platform, rate us, and leave us a review? It would be a tremendous help and allows others to find us more easily. Leave us a review, and perhaps next episode, we'll mention you on the show. Have you heard the acronym CRT? It stands for Critical Race Theory. It's a concept that has been circulating in schools and communities, but what is it? It's important to understand what CRT is, because you will come face-to-face with it. In fact, today I was forwarded an excerpt of an email from a well-respected school that required parents to support CRT or be viewed as insubordinate. Knowing the importance of understanding this issue, I invited Monique Dusson of the Center for Biblical Unity to Candid Conversations to help us peel back the layers of critical race theory. Monique is a racial unity advocate and co-founder with Krista Bontrager of the Center for Biblical Unity. Monique spent two decades advocating for critical race theory, but through a series of events began to clearly see the contradictions of CRT with the historic Christian worldview. Monique is now convinced that CRT is not the best way to achieve racial unity and actively speaks out against the use of CRT within the church. Her mission is to promote a vision for racial healing based on the historic Christian worldview. In this conversation, she helps shed light on the philosophies behind CRT, the role the Christian church should take up in fighting racism, and the importance of biblical discipleship in the journey toward biblical unity. Monique Dusson has a bachelor's in sociology from Biola University. She is working on a master's in theology. She has a background in social service and children's ministry, working with a diverse array of underserved communities. Monique served as a missionary to South Africa for over four years, serving children and teachers impacted by drugs, violence, and trauma. Now, on to our Candid Conversation. Monique, we're so glad that you could join us on Candid Conversations. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Monique, we're going to be tackling a number of things in a very brief period of time. I think it would be helpful for the listeners, it would be helpful for myself, if you could just walk us through your your testimony, walk us through what it was like growing up for yourself, uh, what are the things that shaped your life and sent you into where you are now with this Center for Biblical Unity? 
I was born and, and raised in South Los Angeles, and I was there until I was about 15, 16, and then moved up about 45 minutes north of LA to the San Fernando Valley area. And I grew up with a, a single mom primarily. I did have a stepfather who was in and out, but my conversations growing up with my mom and with school teachers and things like that were very pro-Black. Like, you know, because this is audio only, I am um, African-American or Black. So I grew up in conversations that were extremely pro-Black. My mom gave me a shirt when I was like 12 that said, Black woman, no sugar, no cream on it, and a Mm. big bust of Nefertiti. And so being Black was just something that I was very proud of. I was raised to be proud of it. Um, Black History Month was like my favorite time. And so the thought of who I was as a Black woman was just to me highly pronounced. Even in after I got into church at 16, the people that I was around, you know, also spoke into this and were deeply proud of being Black. And so the conversation of identity and your Mm -hmm. identity being first, your ethnicity, was not necessarily questioned. It was just the way that I was raised to believe. Now, I grew up lower socioeconomic status. So we were poor, um, had a myriad of things happen financially. And so growing up in that dynamic, I wanted to to study and um, work in the realm of social service so that I could help other kids who were also experiencing, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the issues that I experienced in my home. And so I ended up going to Biola University and studying sociology. And then I worked inside of like foster care, group homes. Um, I did a lot of work with homeless populations and case management and program management within nonprofits around Los Angeles to be able Mm -hmm. to really give back and to help elevate kids so that they would have a different trajectory than, you know, what I saw happening around me. Yeah. It's interesting that the community you were in was giving you that identity. It was the household you were in, even within the church, that it was ethnicity first, and even possibly was it socioeconomic status came alongside that? I think maybe in my home or in some of my schooling, not necessarily in the church. In my home or in, you know, school, it was more a thing of, you know, us versus them, so white versus black. And the idea or thought that white people can think that they can do Black people any kind of way, or, you know, we'll always have to work twice as hard in order to be able to earn what a white person does, be be seen as good as a white person and things like that. Yeah. The conversation sort of shifts to this critical race theory. And this was something that you adopted as a philosophy and as a framework for your worldview. How did all of that kind of come into play? Well, what I don't think people understand is that um, the framework itself was originally constructed as a framework in, gosh, it had to be 1987, 88, I believe it was 87. And, you know, so we move forward in this formal framework of critical race theory from that point on with Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, um, gosh, Richard Delgado and people like that. But before it was an actual framework, this has just been word on the street. Like this has just been people's thoughts. Somebody just took people's thoughts and what you can hear in a lot of black liberation theology and put it in a book or, you know, made it a framework. And so this idea of oppressed and oppressor, black people being the oppressed and white people being the oppressor, um, the idea of a revolution, the idea of needing to shift power dynamics and things like that have been around and were just 
parts of the conversation that I grew up under. It wasn't that people, you know, used fancy words. The ideas were consistent. The ideas were there. Mm -hmm. And so getting into university and reading about the critical social theories, which um, at that point were just called like social theories and taking your theory class and things like that. These ideas were things that I could automatically or more easily jump on board with because it was the way that I was taught at home or on the street. Yeah. 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 It was sort of, it was your natural habitat. Okay. So in walking through that, what takes place in your life that begins a shift away from the theories and towards sort of the biblical worldview, biblical framework? The idea of family, Mm -hmm. um, So I lived abroad in South Africa, and right before I came home, the Lord had me in the book of Ephesians and looking at this idea of adoption, this idea of family and things like that. And honestly, I thought it was something just more for myself, like I'm single and I don't have kids. And so living in South Africa, the idea of adoption was very appealing just because of a lot of the things that the, the kids there are going through. And I was specifically working with kids. I moved home unexpectedly, but I didn't realize that the this conversation of adoption and family was for a much bigger situation, which is this here. The idea of family and adoption and getting into the word of God and what it actually means for us to, like according to 2 Corinthians, not just um, kind of judge someone according to their old way of life. How do we participate with each other as brothers and sisters? My ministry partner, Krista, you mentioned her in the beginning. We got into conversations. We had very heated arguments and and discussions about what does the word actually say? As we started those conversations, I wasn't where I am today. And she has two degrees from Talbot. So she's a theologian. And in helping me kind of understand some of the word, like I would read a Bible verse. Well, her thing is you never just read a Bible verse. You read the word in context. And as I've gotten into seminary and things like that, understanding context is very helpful. I think, you know, yes, it was, I can credit Krista to pushing back on some of my views, but it was definitely the Lord who brought Mm -hmm. me along on a journey to be able to say, how are you standing for the family? Will you stand for your brothers and sisters who don't bear your same skin color? Mm. And that was a challenge, challenging me on my ideas of social justice. Mm -hmm. You know, are you for justice for all people or are you for this idea of wealth and power redistribution? What is the justice that is spoken of in scripture and what are you going to stand for? Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that kind of led me away from it. But I'm telling you, to be able to move away from frameworks or ideologies that are not Christian that are not biblical, you have to be able to hold the scripture as the highest authority. Without a doubt. And that's a biblical doctrine. That's a historic Orthodox Christian doctrine. Um, We see this failure of understanding, rightly understanding biblical justice within the church. Is that because there's a, a lack of understanding on the authority of the word, understanding how to read scripture within its entire context, um, rather than sort of pulling bits and pieces and piecemealing scripture and making it say what you want it to say, and then leaders who don't know how to stand on that authority and proclaim it in a helpful way? 
Yeah, I would agree very much so. We aren't necessarily taught in many of our churches how to read the word, how to do proper hermeneutics. How do you understand what is being said? The idea that I can read the Bible and think, well, this is being spoken directly to me. Well, no, actually, when we get into scripture, we should be thinking, how would the original reader have understood this? What was the author's original intent? Because those things can shift from like this original meaning to what I pick up and and think it may mean. That's right. And so if you're not... Yeah. Yes, I see Jesus. <laughs> but it's like <laughs> if if we're not doing the work, and to borrow that, you know, from the social justice movement of really discipling people and training them in the Word of God, and this is how you understand Scripture. This is how you read Scripture. Yeah there's going to be something that's lost. We can't offer people a Bible verse and think that that's going to be enough to get them through the whole week and enough for them to understand what God means, like, or what the word of God means. And you brought up this issue of discipleship and you and I, just before we came on, we're having that conversation and I do want to come back to it, but just again, in following your, your experience and your storyline, I'm thinking you now have these upbringing, this experience, being in a, in a black church, uh, being in the home of a, a single black mother. Um, but I wasn't in under- a black church. Oh, you weren't? No, there were okay. black people in my church. It was a mixed my church. church. It, was, it was mixed. It started out um, extremely white. And over the time that I was there, definitely became more more diverse, um, right, more okay. mixed with uh, with many different ethnicities. But no, I went to a black church specifically when I was younger, probably between like four and eight, and I would go with okay. my grandmother. But I had yes. no idea what was happening at sure. all. Sure, yeah. as most four to eight year olds do. Uh, but I'm thinking, you know, with all of that. And then having your experience in coming to the Word and understanding the Word rightly, what of those experiences and insights that you gained helped you speak into the conversation, perhaps from a perspective that others didn't have and didn't understand? Because I think we kind of want to put people into categories of just right and wrong. So you, mm-hmm. you either have it right or you have it wrong. You know, but there's, but there's, you know, I, I guess essentially I'm coming to the point of, what about critical theory, critical race theory? You know, is it sort of just throw it all out the second it comes up in the conversation, you end the conversation? Or what are the attributes of it that Christians can listen to and ask of themselves? Yeah. Well, I think understanding why the project or the framework of critical race theory even came about is helpful. Um mm-hmm. Here we've had the civil rights movement, critical legal studies has come around at the um, end of the 70s. And people are asking the question, why haven't we seen the results from the civil rights movement that we think we should have seen? There was yeah. there was a lot of promise in this movement, but what's happened? And so now you get critical race theory and it's looking, it's taking a deep dive into society to say, hey, where are issues of racism still prevalent? Yes, we should be asking that question in the church. Is there, even within our community, issues of racism? And I will say that we can ask that question, but the bigger question is, is do we participate in partiality? Because mm. partiality is the sin. Yeah. And so James tells us not to, to have favoritism. 
it's the same right? thing. Like how he's, am I, how he's am I using treating the rich someone? poor image? Yeah. But it's a, it's that's just the yes. that's just the illustration he's chosen. But that goes yes. across all lines. Yeah, yeah. And we should be continually re-evaluating. Do I participate in partiality? Yeah. And I'm not just talking about race. Race is one. Racism yes. is one issue, one sin. But how do I participate in partiality with women versus men, or men versus women, or the rich and the poor, or the able-bodied and the disabled? Like there's we are sinful humans. There is, there are many ways in which we can participate in partiality. The people who like cookies versus the people who like cake, we will create some partiality. Just it's part of our sin nature, unfortunately. And so, yes, I do think that it is definitely a worthwhile endeavor for leadership, for churches, for me as an individual, just ask the Lord, search my heart because there could be issues of partiality within me. I I definitely had partiality in my heart. I was the biggest person who would, you know, say racism is horribly wrong. And yet then I would be racist toward white people yeah. or have horrible thoughts in my heart toward white people. That makes no sense. And yet that was the framework that I was living in and would give justification to it because of a framework that I upheld. Yeah. So I the, would say the that- The framework validated it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The framework definitely validated it. And so I do think that you're on to something and saying, you know, hey, does CRT offer anything valid? Well, when we understand where it comes from and the original endeavor, which was to look and see where is racism still happening in society, I would say, yes, as Christians, we can look and say, hey, is there racism in the church? Is there racism in, in society? How do my brothers and sisters experience the world? Because when we come together on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever days that you meet, You're coming in from the culture. You're coming in from the world. So how do we encourage, equip, you know, speak praise or or, um, psalms and hymns over one another? Like, how do I do that in the context of what's happening in culture? If I don't know what's happening in culture, I won't be able to address the needs of people in a way that's real and tangible. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting, just in thinking through that, because I think, all of these topics, whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter, CRT, racism, anti-racism, cancel culture, wokeness, anything from social media, I think it's caused some people, not trauma, but but sort of like uh, weariness. And mm-hmm. so then they just, they don't even want to have the conversation. They don't want to be a part of it. And they remove themselves from that cultural conversation that's being taken, that's taking place. So how do Christians make themselves aware of these issues and have helpful conversations with brothers and sisters, with the culture at large? Because what you've just done is you've you've described what it looks like on that sort of Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night with the people of God gathering together under the authority of the word, right? So there are conversations that are taking place there about what you've been out in the world, part of culture, right? You've described that so well, but then there's also the sending out from Sunday morning out to the workplace on Monday morning. And you're now having conversations with those who don't know or don't understand or, um, so how do Christians sort of frame and formulate ways of having helpful, fruitful conversations? Well, one, I would say you have to understand the Word of God, because that is going to be the lens that we see things through. It should be the lens we see things through. We don't look at 
at the culture. We don't look at the word of God. We don't look at the world through the lens of sociology. Yeah. The word of God is my lens, my framework, my objective standard by which, you know, I measure all of these other things. Yeah. Not politics. Yeah, no, it's the word of God. That's our objective standard. And from there, though, we can begin to have, um, I don't necessarily want to call them resources. I would call them first sources. We can we can look at first sources. I can look at Robin DiAngelo's book. I and, and to understand like what are what are some of these words that people are using in the culture? Because these words are everywhere. They're in your social media feeds. They're on podcasts. We listen to a podcast. You might be, you know, a young mom or um a working dad who has young kids at home and then you come home and you don't really have a lot of time to sit and, and, and read a book, get that book on audible, listen to podcasts of people who are talking about these things. So at least you have some kind of knowledge or framework to understand what is happening so that when you're approached, you're not just caught off guard. You know, in 2020, one of the things that I heard the most was this just caught the church off guard. The church shouldn't be caught off guard. (laughs) Hold on. And we we definitely shouldn't be so caught off guard that we allow a framework that is antithetical to the scripture to come into our churches. I can't be caught off guard with the word of God if I'm in it. So, you know, I at least need to be be up to speed on the word of God. And this is where discipleship comes in. Because even if I don't know Robin DiAngelo, even if I don't know Ibram Kendi, I should know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if I know the Gospels, when somebody says, well, social justice is the Gospel, I can say, well, no, it isn't. If I'm versed in, you know, some of the law, when people say, well, you know, love is the Gospel, isn't it? No, love is law. So we need to be equipping our people. Mm. Christians need to be equipped in understanding what the word of God is. So even if you don't understand, you know, all the secular frameworks, when a secular framework approaches you or approaches yeah. your, your, the door of your church, you can say, you know, that don't sound too right. Right. We, we're not going to let that in here. Yeah. But unfortunately, because we aren't versed in the word of God correctly. Yes. Yes. Then, you know, the door is open because, well, maybe, well, the culture says, or, well, this pastor over here told me, you know, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but he told me this and it really sounds good. Well, if you don't agree with him on 97% of his doctrine, why would you believe this one or 2% of something else he's trying to tell you? Right. Yeah. And I think it's the, it sounds good is probably the top response to that. Mm -hmm. And Christians will, will say that, right? Because it feels biblical. Right, it feels so. I think we we need to kind of met out the difference between biblical justice and and social justice. I mean, can you help us sort of think through those separate avenues? Because I think you're right. I think people have muddled them up. Yes. So when I think of biblical justice, I look back at the law. I look back at the Ten Commandments. How do we treat one another? What is my relationship with God? How am I supposed to to stand in relationship with God? Many people, when they think about you know justice. Even biblical justice, they immediately run to Micah 6, 8. You know, um, do justice, walk humbly with your God. But they never go to Micah 6, 1. They never, who was being addressed in Micah? You know, they put this command for wealth redistribution, which is more the social justice, this redistribution of power. You know, anyone with power, usually bearing white skin, they need to give up a certain portion of their, their wealth. They need to give up a certain portion of their power and redistribute these things. Well, who was being addressed in Micah? 
when we look in Micah, it wasn't that that there was this huge call to the general masses as we are putting forward from the church and saying, if anyone who sits in the pew, no, the, the people who were being addressed were the elders. It was those in leadership. And why were they being addressed? Because they, they should have understood the Old yeah. Testament law and how do you treat one another? Yeah. But we conflate all this. We take one Bible verse and say, well, the Bible says do justice, thus social justice. Social justice comes along with the, the idea that I must now redefine marriage, that I must stand up for reproductive justice, which is abortion. You know, all of these things get thrown under the banner of justice and many Mm -hmm. people not knowing what the word says will follow along on this rabbit trail. When, if we look at justice from an Old Testament perspective, because justice is an Old Testament conversation idea, this is where we find justice in the law, in the Old Testament, when we understand that, we would understand that, no, I can't be a part of a justice conversation while, you know, affirming reproductive justice, which is abortion. I can't be a justice advocate while supporting the redefinition of marriage and all of that when I see the formation of the family in Genesis 1. So, Again, threading through and looking at, well, what is social justice versus what is biblical justice? Biblical justice is what God initiated or set up in the law for how we treat one another. This idea of social justice is the redistribution of wealth, the redistribution of power, the um, redefinition of marriage, the promotion of abortion and things like that under this, this idea that these are the things that, that make society more just and fair. It's a redefinition of the word justice, actually. Simply thinking through that, I mean, okay, redistribute power from whom to whom, you know, from someone who's uh, abusing a power, who's to say that the next person won't abuse the power, right? Whether it's a man or a woman, whether they're black or white, yeah. whether they're, you know, it's, it's, it's. And who's to say that power is inherently evil? <laughs> Right. No, we don't see that. You know, when we look at things or or people who say, you know, down with the patriarchy, well, down with the patriarchy would be down with Christianity because isn't God the father? Right. You know, we we aren't taking time to thread through a lot of these conversations or these ideas that are being presented to the church. Unfortunately, we are allowing cultural ideas to creep into the church and then we baptize them in Jesus or sprinkle some, you know, scripture on it and say, well, here, this is for you as well. Yeah. And, and I love that you brought up the issue of discipleship because I have had conversations with people from very different backgrounds. Thomas Terrence, who was a former Klansman, uh, mm-hmm. who's a, a born again believer and uh, an apologist and a, a works with uh, you know, mixed race churches. And then you've got Daryl Strawberry, who's got a completely different background. And both of them have, in interviews with them, have talked about this importance of discipleship. And you've uh, reiterated to me today, earlier when we talked, that this too is an issue of discipleship. Right. So if, yep. like you said, if we are holding to the tenets of the faith, if we know the word of God and have interpreted it well, then this informs our hearts and our minds so that we can view and understand and have a, a right biblical worldview framework to see when false ideologies come our way that will use words like justice and peace and love and all the things that are, are scriptural but have been twisted and warped and are, and are being used in unbiblical, unhelpful ways. Yes. 
Yes. Discipleship is where, where we start. You know, you mentioned um, the thought that, and this is before we got on air, but the thought that, you know, is racism, CRT, the biggest issue facing the church today? It's not. It's not. Our lack of discipleship is. Yeah. Because if we aren't properly discipled, then I don't know what it means to be a Christian. I don't know what the tenets are that I should be following. I'm just here. And unfortunately, too many Christians are just here in my observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the sexual identity, gender issues, and the, the racism, those are symptomatic of what you've just described, which is the bigger issue, which is discipleship. Which if, if churches were doing that better or uh, doing it at all, then some of these issues wouldn't be issues in the church. And, and beyond that, then we think about now the church goes out into the world with that message of what true biblical justice looks like, right? Yeah. So we actually have good news for them yes, to answer the questions that they have or the frustrations that they're facing. Yeah. You know, um, you said if churches were doing it better or at all, you know, I, I, I think better is hard to quantify at times. And I don't want people to just feel like, well, this is just a down on pastors and things like that. But one of the things I would remind people is that in the early church, in order to become a Christian, in order to come into the flock and then the family, there was a process. It wasn't just a, hey, just say this little prayer as you into your heart. And, you know, now you're part of us. People needed to know what they were signing up for. So there was teaching to help people understand this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what you're signing up for. And then they did life together. We've gotten away from that, especially in our Western, you know, we need it quick and fast culture. But my encouragement would be, you know, forget about like, oh, I just need to do this better. Like, let's do it biblically. Let's look at you know, how were people discipled? How were people brought into the faith? What did that mean? What did it actually mean to be a Christian? Did it mean that I just wore a cross around my neck and, you know, told people I was a Christian, come to church on, you know, every other Sunday? What did it mean to actually be a Christian and to live out the Christian faith? Yeah. And that's called indoctrination. There but you we go. think that that's a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it is passing on doctrine. Yes. And you're right. I mean, I, I think that's an element today that we face as Christians in a hyper-individualistic society, and we've lost a lot of that element of the community, the church community, the biblical community, the coming together, seeing the value that it it provides, and we end up replacing it with sometimes cheap imitations of that. Oh, that's good. Um, mm-hmm. Well, Monique Dusan, I know uh, I've taken up all your time. I know you've got to run to other things. Your website, centerforbiblicalunity.com, is that right? Yes, centerforbiblicalunity.com. Dot com. Uh, we'll make but we're sure- also on Facebook and yes. Instagram and all those places. And we'll put some links in the show notes for people. Um, I wish we could have talked yes. much more and longer, but um, this is the time we have. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to hear your story, hear about uh, how God is using you, and uh, be praying for you with the work that you have. Thank you. Thanks for coming on Candid Conversations. Thanks so much. God bless. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. 
While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.